0: Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. The Apostle Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. But also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. (coughs) Excuse me. Father, we are so grateful for the work that you have done. Father, we are grateful that you have. Loved us enough to send your son to die for us. Father, help us now to understand some of the implications of that. Nothing exists in a vacuum. And that includes the event that we are celebrating this morning and the items that Paul prayed for us. Holy Spirit, I need your help. I readily admit that. I am not sufficient in and of myself for the task at hand, but only by your grace and your power. And thank you for giving us a reason to be here. So we say again, Jesus, thank you. Amen. You know, one of the many privileges of being a Christian is the believer's adoption into God's family. The church is the family of God. And all the, although the church is not perfect, every church has its imperfections. The fact that the church is not perfect does not mean that we cannot be healthy. It's just like our physical bodies. Uh, You may not fall into my category, but my body's not perfect. I have my warts and my blemishes and thinning hair and uh, sore legs, amen. (laughs) But that doesn't keep me from being healthy. And likewise, the church may have its imperfections because it is made up of imperfect people. But that doesn't mean that the church isn't healthy. And a healthy family loves one another. A healthy family encourages one another. A healthy family looks out for one another. When you're part of a family, you know that your family has your back. You know that your family has your best interests at heart. Now let me give you an illustration of this. It was just this past Friday night about 8:30. My phone rings. And it was Matt telling me that there was water coming in a window in the bottom of the building, in the basement. And as my heart sank, he said, do you have a wet vac that you could bring and suck up some water? And I said, no, I don't have one, but I know someone who does. So while Matt and Ben were downstairs mopping up the water, I called Don and Marion and uh, told them of the plight and... Uh, We needed someone to come vacuum up the water. Now, keep in mind, it's nine o'clock on a Friday night and it's raining. You know what they did? They got in their car, they packed up their shop vac, and they came here and they helped us vacuum up the water downstairs. Say, oh, well, they just did that for you because you asked. No, they didn't do that for me. They did it for the church family. And I know there's many others of you who would have done the same thing. Some may find it strange that we are having Easter dinner together after the service, because after all, Easter is like a family holiday, and you have your family over to your house, and you all eat lunch together. (laughs) Well, that's what we're doing. As a family, we are eating together. Think about this. There are those among our midst who they don't have any family nearby. So do we just let them eat alone and be alone on such a special day, especially for us as Christians? No. We have lunch together. We eat together because that's what families do. They enjoy each other and they spend time together. Okay. Okay. Well, so what's this got to do with anything in Ephesians? Well, here in Ephesians 1, we have the Apostle Paul writing to another church family in the first century, and it was a a church family that was brought into existence by the Holy Spirit during the Apostle Paul's first missionary trip, and as you read his letter, and we've been studying this letter for some time, it's apparent that he loves them. That he has a deep concern for them. It's apparent in his letter that he desires them to experience God's very best for them. It's apparent that he has this desire for them to experience all of the fullness of the blessings that accompany their salvation. He wants them to understand, and this is something we've tried to repeatedly stress, he wants them to understand that their salvation is so much more than the forgiveness of their sins and the reconciliation to God the Father. As wonderful as it is, there is so much more to the believer's salvation than just the forgiveness of sins. So in a, in a sense, he is their spiritual father. And f- a father worth his salt always wants, his best, wants the best for their children. And because the Apostle Paul wants the best for them, you know what he does? He prays for them. He prays for them. But he does more than pray for them. He teaches them. Literally, he disciples them through his letter. And what does he teach them? Well, he teaches them who they are in Christ. In other words, he teaches them about their identity in Christ. He teaches them about what awaits them in eternity. But he doesn't stop there. He also teaches them about all of the resources that God has made available to them as they try and live life in this world, a world of sin, of cruelty, and many times loneliness. So we could say that Paul has their back. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, if you're a disciple of Christ, Paul's got your back. Through his writings, you know what he's doing? He's praying for you. He's loving you. He's teaching you. And he's discipling you. In fact, if you want to make yourself a note in the margin of your Bible by verse 15, you could just write these words, Paul thinking of me. Paul's thinking of me. Make Scripture personal. This wasn't just written to a group of people some 2,000 years ago. The Holy Spirit had Grace Community Church on April 21st in 2019 in mind when Paul wrote these words. Now, the reason that I read verses 15 through 23 is because I wanted you to hear what Paul's prayer for us was. And if you are a believer, this is Paul's prayer for you. This is his desire for you. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want you to think that I'm making the Apostle Paul out to be the hero of this passage because he's not. God is the hero. God is the one doing all of these things, providing all of these things for us. Paul is simply the messenger. So remember that. Paul is a messenger relaying to us what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. So what specifically does he pray for us? Well, in verse 17, he prays that you would be given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He also prays that the eyes of your heart, literally, that your mind would be enlightened or that your mind would be given the ability to understand through the Holy Spirit the hope to which all believers have been called. And by the way, the hope that Paul prays for us here is not the hope of the world. The hope of the world is very uncertain. It's always uncertain. That's why they call it hope. You know, uh, I, I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan. I hope they win some games this year. They might. They might not. More than likely, they might not. You know, Bengals fan, definitely not. Okay, no hope. No hope. I hope, but it's a pointless hope. <laughs> Many times... <laughs> Many times, that's, that's what the hope of the world is. There, there's no basis to it. There's, there's no firm foundation to it. We just, we just hope that it happens. That is not biblical hope. Biblical ho- hope is certain. Biblical hope is sure. You know why? Because it is rooted and grounded and founded upon the nature and the character of God. A God who cannot lie. A God who has never missed a deadline on any of his promises. So Paul wants them to know of the hope that they have, of the certainty that they have, of the security that they have, of the stability that they have, okay? So then in verse 19, Paul prays that they and all believers would know not only with their minds intellectually, but also with their hearts, that would be experientially, the power of God that is, that is at work within them. Say, so now why does he want us to know the power So we can benefit from the power. That's why. He's just not giving us some facts. He's not giving us some Bible trivia. He wants us to know the power so that we can benefit from the power each and every day of our existence. So with that backdrop, let's read verses 19 and 20 again. Paul says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, you're intelligent people, so let's think this through. If Paul prays for the believer to have knowledge of this power, that leads me to believe that many of them were either ignorant of this power Or they had had a need to be reminded of this power. They were unaware of God's power towards them. If that was true then, then I feel like I'm on pretty solid ground by saying it's probably true for most people today. We may be ignorant of this power or we need to be reminded of this power. I also conclude from this that This power is a necessity for you and I as believers to ignore the immeasurable immeasurable greatness of his power towards us leads to the following problems. Here's the first one. It results in our defeat when we could have been victorious. It means that we will continue to think ourselves powerless to change. We will continue to see ourselves as victims rather than recognizing our true identity in Christ. We may think that we are powerless to endure, that we're powerless to cope with living in a fallen sinful world, or that we think that we are powerless to fulfill God's calling and purpose on our lives, which is to conform us to the image of Christ. And our progress is so slow. It seems like it's one step forward and 85 steps back sometimes, doesn't it? Well, apart from the power, this immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us, that is true. That's a reality. We need this power to keep moving forward. So Paul prays that we would not know defeat, that we would experience victory. That we would no longer see ourselves as victims, but as the overcomers that we are. Paul says, I want you to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you. You are not powerless. You are not helpless. You don't have to be the loser. I was up here the other day in Carson were in the back room and Nora was drawing something on a piece of paper, and for those of you who know the Lego Batman movie, you'll know where this came from. All of a sudden, she she, uh, just said to nobody in particular, uh, loser at home and loser at work. (laughs) As Christians, we are not losers, okay? We are not losers. You can change, you can live with purpose, and you can live with confidence. Now, let me outline... Verses 19 and 20 with four words. Here they are. We see the dimension of God's power. We see the direction of God's power. We see the discrimination of God's power. And then we see the demonstration of God's power. So let's start first with the dimension of God's power. Paul prays that you and I as believers would understand the scope or the dimension of God's power. And what is this dimension? Well, notice how Paul describes it. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? You know what's going on here? God's power is so great that Paul is struggling even to find a word that would begin to describe the scope or the extent of God's power. In reality, there are no human words that adequately describe the scope of God's power. It's immeasurably great. It is supremely great. It is greater than any power that humanity could ever devise. It is a power greater than nuclear power. It is a power greater than the forces of nature. In fact, it can't be measured. It can't be described. It is, in Paul's own words, the best that the great apostle Paul could come up with is what? Immeasurably great. You can't measure it. You think about the forces of nature, and every year the people on the southern coast and the east coast, they have to worry about what? Hurricane season. And what have we seen in the past few years? We have seen some incredibly powerful hurricanes that have wreaked havoc and destru- destruction. As you watch the news accounts, and as the days leading up to the hurricane making landfall, they'll say, well this is a category one storm, or this is a category four storm, or 100, whatever it is, and they're, they're, they're categorizing the, the power of the storm. They can measure the power of the storm. But you know, even though they can measure the power of the storm, you know what they can't do? They can't stop it. They can't stop it. They're powerless to stop it. We're powerless to stop it. Well guess what? When it comes to God's power, there is no scale of measurement. It cannot be measured. And just like a hurricane, it cannot be stopped. It is immeasurably great. And we see the power of God has toppled the mighty empires of this world throughout history. And by the way, it will continue to do so. Go read of God delivering his people out of slavery to the mighty nation of Egypt. God used a tongue-tied prophet to... Bring the mightiest nation on this earth to its knees. And systematically, one by one, God showed the immeasurable greatness of his power over the false gods of Egypt. You can shake your fist towards heaven. You can shake your fist towards God. You can threaten God. You can curse God. But you know what? You can't do any damage to God. Rail all that you want. Make all the claims that you want. They do not affect God. So we see the dimension of God's power. It's immeasurably great. Then we see the direction of God's power. Now notice what he says here. Would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. That's direction. There's words of direction toward us who believe. And we live in a world that is obsessed with power, isn't it? We talk about the rich and the powerful. We talk about the power brokers of the world. The next installment of the Avengers movie is coming out, and it'll make another bazillion dollars. Why? Because people seem to be obsessed with their superpowers. But you know, the rich and the powerful and the power brokers all have one thing in common. They use their power to achieve their own ends, and they are not going to share their power with anyone. If you don't believe that, just go to Washington, D.C., They use their power to achieve their own ends and for their own personal gain. They will not share the, their power and they're going to hold on to it at any cost. So here we see this huge chasm, the difference, the contrast between our great God and fallen mankind. The God who is truly all-powerful, you know what he does? He puts that power to work Towards us, towards us, for us. And when you think about this little phrase, for us, towards us, teaches us so much about God. First thing it teaches me is that God's not selfish. He's not selfish. I've got the power that you need. I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to put it to use on your Behalf. It teaches us that God loves us. It teaches us that God is not threatened by anything that we do. It teaches us that, God's desire, that God desires the best for us. It teaches us that his power is inexhaustible. And I want you to know this. God puts this power to work towards every believer in Christ. Every believer. Not just the Pipers and MacArthur's and the great ones that we think of in the Christian world. No, he puts his power to work for the lowliest believer in the most out-of-the-way spot. For that believer who can't seem to get out of their own way, he puts that power to work for them. Paul prays that we as believers would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us. This is what makes the believer eternally secure. You cannot lose your salvation because you're not stronger than God. Okay? That's part of what Paul was trying to show us here. We are eternally secure because God's power is immeasurably great. So we have the dimension, the direction, And then we have the demonstration of God's power. I guess we could ask ourselves, what is the greatest display of power that uh, we could come up with? Some would say creation is the greatest display of power. After all, what did God do? God simply spoke, and what happened? He created. Others might say, well, no, the forces of nature, they're the greatest display of power. But the violent nature of nature... Is one way that God displays his power, but I don't think it's the greatest display of his power. Others would point to mankind's creation of weapons of mass destruction and say, that's the greatest display of power. After all, we could unleash enough of these weapons to literally wipe everybody off uh, the face of the earth. Powerful, yes, but I don't think that's the greatest display of power. What what then could be the greatest display of power? Well, we just read it. You know what it is? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest display of power. What is more powerful than bringing life from death? Can you give me an example of something more powerful than that? And as you think about this, uh, some of these uh, other displays of power, such as A hurricane or weapons of mass destruction. You know what they're used for? They are used to destroy, not to create. The hurricane comes, and what happens? Sometimes whole towns are destroyed, cities are flooded, people die, and a mess is left behind. It just destroys. You think of the weapons that mankind has made. What do they do? They destroy. They take life. They wreak havoc. Man's mankind's power is always destructive. Why? Because we are fallen creatures and that's the best we can do. But God's power is creative. God does what only he is capable of doing and that is to create life where there is no life. One commentator said, the resurrection is the proof beyond every other proof of the fact that every obstacle and hindrance and enemy set in our path shall be overcome. Everything. So Paul prays that every believer would understand that God's power towards us is, mark this, resurrection power. The greatest display of power. Paul says that is the immeasurable greatness of his power. And guess what, believer? It's for you. It's for you. Now let's revisit the hope of the believer. Why does the believer have a certain hope? Because of resurrection power. You think of uh, Jesus standing before the tomb of Lazarus. What did he have to do in order to bring Lazarus back to life? Did he go through some ritual? What did he have to do? All he said was three words. Lazarus, come forth. And life came from death. What is more powerful than that? See, Resurrection power is unstoppable. It has a momentum that cannot be stopped. It's never been threatened, and it will will never meet its match. It is immeasurably great, believer, and it is at work in you, for you, and through you, and all of God's people say what? Amen. Now, let me talk to the skeptic that may be here this morning. Do you want proof of the power of the resurrection? You can have it right now. All you have to do is look at the people around you in this room. And as you look at people around you in this room, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing many in which God has brought life out of death. Many who were dead in their trespasses and sins, but now they are in Christ. They have been made alive together with Christ. And see, one powerful, powerful Irrefutable proof of the resurrection is changed lives, not perfect lives. Quit being a hypocrite and expecting Christians to be perfect. You're not perfect, but they are changed. And they desire to keep changing, and they desire to become more like Christ. Quit hiding behind your false claim of hypocrisy. It will do you no good when you stand before God someday. You look around you see people They're not perfect But they are not who they used to be and they're not who they're going to be There are people in this room Who are survivors of incredible tragedy in their lives How through the power of the resurrection There are people in this room right now who are going through incredibly painful experiences, which the outsider looking in wonders how they are enduring it. How are they able to bear it and keep going through the power of the resurrection? There are people in this room right now who are survivors of all kinds of abuse. And how did they survive and how are they now thriving Through the power of the resurrection. See, this room is filled with all the proof you need of the power and the reality of the resurrection. Now, let's drive the point home, believer. What is it in your life that you feel powerless about? I want you to fix something in your mind right now. Well, here's the first thing I want you to do. Whatever it is, accept the fact That in your own strength and in your own ability, you will never be able to adequately deal with it, whatever it is, large or small. But don't stop with acceptance of defeat and failure. And that's where too many stop. Instead, grab hold of the truth that Paul prays that we would grab hold of, which is the reality of that the immeasurable greatness of God's power is at work towards you, the believer. Take comfort in this. God's power assures you that one day you will be all that he desires you to be. Isn't that comforting? That's real hope. One day you will experience the riches of his glory for all of eternity. But what if? But what if God chooses to use his power to change you or your set of circumstances or your situation? What if God does that? What should should you do? You should praise him. You should thank him. You should glorify him. But what if God doesn't change you or your situation? Does that render what Paul has said here, null and void for you? No. I believe there's two ways that God puts his power to work in our lives as believers. Number one, to to change. And if it's not God's will to change our situation, perhaps to our satisfaction, perhaps to our liking, you know what he will do? He will give you the power to cope. He will not abandon you if he doesn't change the situation he will give you the ability through his power through the Holy Spirit to help you cope with the situation how again through the immeasurable greatness of his power through us now you may have noticed that the old boys had a senior moment and he forgot one of his points which was my third point, the discrimination of his power. Well, I'm not as old and senile as you think I am, because I didn't forget I really thought that it fit much better as a conclusion. Now, you may have noticed that Paul was careful to point out that God uses his power in a discriminating way. Everything that Paul prays for them only applies to the believer, to the Christian. You see that? I say this with all the love that I can. If you're not a Christian, we are so thrilled that you're here. But I have to be honest with you. I don't want you walking away thinking that Paul prayed this for you. Because he didn't. Paul prays this for the believer, for the Christian. If you're not a Christian, then the power of God describing these verses, they have nothing to do with you. But before you take offense, keep this in mind. God is sovereign, and he can and he will do as he pleases, and not as you and I wish or think he should do. You say, wait a minute, that's not fair. Really? Do you really want God to be fair? But what if you recognize your need for the immeasurable greatness of God's power working on your behalf? Well, then I've got good news. In that case, the power of the resurrection is available to you. But it is only available to you on a conditional basis You know that condition is believe the gospel Believe the gospel So what's it mean to believe the gospel number one? You understand that God is your creator and one way or another. We are answerable to him Okay We can deny that he exists we can say, well, if he does exist, he's, what's that got to do with me? It's got everything to do with you. He created you. You are responsible to him. Second thing it means is you, you need to recognize a basic truth about yourself that you're not as good as you think you are. And I know that's hard for our, many in our generation to believe because whether, you know, whether it's an axe murderer or a rapist, they, they have a good heart. No, they don't. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Recognize that God's your creator. Recognize the fact that you're not as good as you you think that you are. That there is nothing within you that can please God or appease God. So what do I do if I recognize the fact that, uh, hey, that describes me. I'm, I'm responsible to God, but uh, I have no way of appeasing God. There's no way that I can please God. What can I do? There's only one thing that you can do. You can repent of your sins and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? From that moment forward, the power of the resurrection will be at work towards you, for you, through you. See? And if you want to talk with somebody about that this morning, you can talk to me, Ben, who was singing over here, Todd, who read the scriptures, Don, who gave you a sheet when you came in. You can talk to any one of us. But I would encourage you, do not put it off. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. None of us are guaranteed of the next breath. Let's pray. Father, uh, the rest is up to you to see how you work, how you may draw others to yourself. Father, I pray for those who may be here today and they're not believers, I pray that through the preaching of your word that you would prick their conscience and continue to do so until they come to grips with the reality of their responsibility to you. And Father, I just pray that you would be gracious to many and open their eyes and Father, for those of us who are already in Christ, who are already believers, I pray that you would help us from this moment forward to recognize and to live out and to live by, live through the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us. What a tragedy it would be if we would arrive in heaven someday, only then to discover what could have been if we had just taken advantage of the resources that you have provided for us. Father, that's true for the believer. That's true for the unbeliever. What a tragedy when they realized that salvation was possible for them. It was as close to them as I am to them right now, closer, and they rejected it. Father, rob us of our sense of pride and arrogance that we know better than you and we want to put you on trial and we're going to question you and and if you answer all of our questions sufficiently then we'll bow the knee to you no 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 we will bow the knee to you one way or another Paul says there's coming a day when every knee will bow every tongue will confess that what Jesus Christ is Lord may we do it in a saving way and not at a time of judgment. We ask all these things in Christ's name. And Father, just me add this. May we as believers not dishonor you by ignoring your power. May we not dishonor you by clinging on to some event or our past lifestyle or any of those things. That's dishonoring to you. May we live out our identity in Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.